Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I've learned through the process of sort of mingling in both design and art worlds that I'm sort of this sensitive conduit between these two worlds. Hey everyone, I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today I'm talking to interior designer Elena Frampton. Elena grew up on the West Coast, went to school in the Southwest, and now operates her studio, Frampton Co., out of New York. In addition to expressive, bold, and highly personalized interior architecture and design, art advising is a big part of what she does. And as you'll hear in our delightful conversation, nothing feels more fulfilling to her than finding the right home for a work of art. Here's Elena. I'm Elena Frampton. I'm the founder and principal designer of Frampton Co., we're a 12-person design team, and we also have a unique in-house art advisory division. So I am based here in New York City and also have a satellite on Long Island in Bridgehampton. And we also own a gallery called Exhibition, and that showcases our creative and curatorial visions. I am at the core, a idea person, and I am driven by expressing myself creatively. I'm also sort of battling against the notion of designer as shopper, and I'm looking to propel designer as creator. Nice. So we're going to get into designer as creator when we get into your professional trajectory. But first, I want to know about young Elena and how you found your, your creative leanings. Can you take us all the way back to your childhood? So I understand you were born and raised in Southern California. I was. Um, I was born in Pasadena, which is about 10 miles northeast of downtown Los Angeles. And I grew up in a modern house. My bedroom had 18-foot ceilings and a skylight. <laughs> and I sort of credit that space as an awakening into, like, architecture and design. And that's where I was brought up. <laughs> With 18-foot ceilings in your bedroom, your imagination yeah. <laughs> had real room to soar. Did school feel like a tiny box? It did, except for the school I went to, you know, Southern California has these like indoor outdoor schools. So um, I would say the classroom felt like a box 
And, you know, and it's funny you say that because I'm my, my thing now is I always say, don't box me in, (laughs) um, like in every context, uh, I I don't want to be boxed in, but I would say, yeah, school and growing up, I always felt a little different. I was uh, sensitive and creative and probably mature. And I think, you know, I always expressed interest in, going on house tours or going to museums at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say, you know, my parents would say, you know, she's very unique, which I always interpreted as like sort of different. <laughs> it's so funny how kids interpret things in their own way. And that could also mean like, she's, she's our weird child. <laughs> <laughs> or she's would, our special yes. child, you know, depending yes. on your, so you had just, um, both yeah, parents. Both parents and they both noticed the interest and just sort of did what they could to foster it. So, I mean, I was very young. My, I would go with my mom to the grocery store and we would buy like floor plan books. I mean, we're talking at like five or six years old. Yeah. So she she would get she would buy me these floor plan magazines that you would buy like at the checkout counter at the grocery store, and then she would buy me graph paper. I just sort of taught myself to draw floor plans at like five or six years old. And then my dad actually, he and I would do like our Saturday father daughter activities and he would take me actually to open houses. Oh, wow. So he would like pull out the listings for, you know, the Pasadena neighborhood and I would get to pick the houses that I wanted to go into. And he and I would have the whole charade about how we were looking to buy a house. That's so fun. It's kind of like elaborate (laughs) out in the real world make-believe but you're also getting in a, a window into all this architecture, but a window into how people live. Exactly. At a very young age. And yeah. so my mom, my mom still loves telling the story of how elaborate these floor plans were and that, you know, I would just do hundreds of them and say, look how the fountain is centered on the door. So it was just a, you know, a unique situation, very different. <laughs> I have a question about being sensitive as a child. Did your parents teach you how to be okay with that? Or did you feel like you had to, like you were constantly under pressure to toughen up or? I would think I was under pressure to be more extroverted. And I think, you know, growing up, we weren't as therapized as we are now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was quiet and observant. And I think that there was pressure to be more extroverted, to be more talkative, and to be more of an outward person. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just something that through age, I sort of navigated, but I don't think the sensitivity thing was ever discussed. Certainly the shyness was a thing. I do a lot of public speaking now, so it's sort of ironic how the trajectory of it all, but I I don't know that anybody talked about the sensitivity thing. I just know from reflection that that I was just like very aware and observant of people and sort of their way of being and, and how it affects their behavior and their relationship to space. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's a huge part of being a designer is kind of understanding how space affects mood, feeling, energy, but also understanding how people respond to things and why and being sensitive to that. You know, I'm glad nobody told you, oh, you're too sensitive uh, so that you might have felt like you had to turn that down within yourself, which, of course, you and I know isn't possible. It's not like it's a knob that you can <laughs> like dial down. Sensitivity is just something you can learn to work with. 
And I think that's what it was. I think it was learning to work with it. And again, this comes through age and just life experience. But Mm -hmm. if you look back at even like the movies of that time, it was like the artistic kids were sort of the oddballs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I never even really fit into the artistic circle in a way. So I I think it was like that, that uh, youth and teen angst was definitely shaped my empathy for people and my patience for people and mostly for myself in that I give myself space to be, you know, the person that I am and the creative that I am. Oh, that's so interesting because I was going to ask you about that. I mean, sensitives frequently have kind of really turbulent teenage years just because all their peers are going through raging hormones and they're feeling that as well as their own raging hormones pretty deeply. And so it can be just a very, very confusing time for any teenager, but I think particularly a sensitive one. How did you learn to carve out space for yourself? And and how did you even learn to give yourself permission for that? That's a great question. I think that from the ages of, say, like 12 to 17 was the time of Uh, honestly, like a lot of rebellion. And that probably goes back into like not wanting to be boxed in um, of expectations for what I'm supposed to do or who I'm supposed to be. And also never really fitting into any pocket at school. Like I was friends with the homecoming queen. I was friends with the kid who was smoking cigarettes in the parking lot. Right. Mm -hmm. So like I never fit into any group, but I got along with everybody. Yeah, that's me too. I just sort of made it through. Probably it's that vision of, I always figured I would end up somewhere more interesting than, and it's so funny now because I love going back to Southern California, but growing up there, I just thought this feels a little surface to me, but I know that when I get out of here, I'll end up somewhere that's the right fit. And that's, and so that sort of hope was like a guiding light, just make it through now and you'll get to where you're supposed to be. Your rebellion, was it mostly um, rebelling against, let's say the stereotypes at school? Was it rebelling against rules at home? Did you have a lot? I mean, of, I think all, all, all of, of the of, above. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my parents were, I would say probably on the stricter side. Um, so it was rebelling against that. I think I probably joined my friend in stealing her parents' car and taking off in the convertible until someone caught us. I, you know, oh, I mean, I feel I definitely, so California rebel. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think it was every, in every which way that I could, I did. Um, and also in school, I mean, anything math or science related where I would, you know, just sort of blank out, then I focused on, you know, the ceramics class or any, in any which way that I could, I would rebel. And, and if it was, I was supposed to do something, I would definitely not want to do it. And that was that I would say 12 to 12 to 17, also known as not my parents' favorite years. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they, it's, they're just so grateful that it all worked out. (laughs) Um, I'd say 12, yeah, 12 to 17 was, uh, was a time of rebellion and stretching those boundaries. And then, um, like sort of circling around in a funny way. And kicking down any any walls to any boxes that people tried to build exactly. you into. <laughs> exactly. So how was your creativity showing up? Were you still drawing floor plans and going to open houses? Or were you was, like yeah. cutting your hair and dyeing it? And pe- I never, yeah, I never did the hair, but I definitely um, probably through clothing mm-hmm. um, express myself, I would say my mom's extremely stylish. My grandmother was extremely stylish. They were always put together. They would probably 
try on five outfits before they went out. So then what I did in those years was, you know, I tore my jeans, I painted on my jeans, I colored them, I put, you know, which is now very stylish wearing like a tunic over pants, I would do that and mortify my mom, like a dress is a dress and pants are pants. And like in any which way that I could express myself, I would. Um, And then certainly in through school, as many art classes as I could take, I also took like, Saturday classes at the local at art center, um, which is a, you know, art college, they allowed high school students to take classes. So I think those were the areas that I could feel most comfortable. I love that you took classes at art center, because I think for so many people, it's really helpful to get a window into all the different ways that your creativity could become a profession. I don't think as children, we're taught enough about where our products come from, where who designs things, houses, cities. Um, so we don't really understand what to do with all this creative energy. And so many parents are afraid that it's we're going to end up starving artists, that they don't right. necessarily funnel you toward that. But taking those classes at Art Center, I'm sure, kind of opened your eyes to all the different possibilities. Did it, it? Was, it was hugely influential. I mean, I can still smell the scent of the automotive models mm-hmm. being crafted um, because they have a huge automotive design program and product design program. But I think that those classes were, again, it was that guiding light, you know, that extraordinary building. You know, I, was, I think I was 14 or 15 years old. And so my mom would have to take me every week and driving up the, the winding road and then driving under that you know, modern glass and steel structure. I just, I, I couldn't believe it. That experience was just extraordinary. And so to be there was that guiding light of, okay, you know, maybe I'll come here after high school or I'll find some other design school, but it definitely put together to your point the, that there, this could be a job. And around that same time, actually, I also took a, an internship with a local design and contracting firm where this is back in the day of the blueprints with that ammonia smell Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, where at 15 I was like running blueprints for like a local office oh your mom was like all those layout books totally paid off (laughs) (laughs) exactly this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive 
they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So how did you decide to venture to Arizona State University for college, and and how did you pick your major? I knew the major was going to be interior design. Actually, when I was maybe 12 or 13, I thought I wanted to be an architect. And then as I you know, went through high school and took classes at Art Center, it was clear I was very interior focused. So I knew my major would be interior design. Um, and just at that time, I think, I don't know, I was 17 and I was researching schools and ASU had a great program. They also, um, at the time had a five-year program, which just to me seemed delightful, um, <laughs> because it was like more time before having to face the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and they had an amazing facility. So that's the thing about, you I know, feel sort you. of a newer West coast or Western school. It's like the facilities are, are very modern and, um, it just, it seemed like a shiny, a shiny place to start out. Yeah. And I mean, I can see why a five-year program is appealing, if, especially if you're, it sounds like you're kind of a lifelong learner and that the idea of continuing to learn as much as you can, um, in a setting that's like built for it is paradise to me. I mean, I cried at graduation, not, oh. <laughs> not tears of joy, but tears of like, don't make me leave. Um, I cried for like three days. I did not want to leave. I loved my college experience. And I still, um, there's two professors I still keep in touch with. Um, and every time I send out like a business newsletter, I get an email from them. And it's such a special kind of connection and touchstone for me. Um, in fact, you know, because Arizona State's in you know, the desert, Mm -hmm. um, whenever I have a moment where I need to, you know, take a step back and reassess or have refreshed time or think about my path and like, where am I going in life and what am I doing and what's my purpose? I go to the desert. I think that because that college experience was such a pivotal time for me. Mm -hmm. There's something about the desert too, that's sort of like the dry ocean. It's so vast that it puts everything into perspective and the sky just the that starry sky just absorbs all the stupid stuff and you're left with only the meaningful (laughs) thoughts (laughs) it's true it's very true and there's sort of something about like the ruggedness and sort of it's raw it's beautiful it's kind of dangerous it's kind of scary it's kind of rough it's just sort of like everything that that life is is all wrapped up into the into the desert whereas 
you know, I live part time by the ocean and I love the beach and it, it is a beautiful thing, but it's also, it's very peaceful. Um, and I find the desert to be, that's the place where I can really go to the core and be honest about who I am and what I want to do and what feels right to me and maybe get in touch with the gut instincts, which can so often be clouded by all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, they just get scrambled and covered over by the day to day and other people's issues and complications and politics and all of that stuff. So I'm sorry that leaving college was such a traumatic experience for you, but you seem like you've done pretty well for yourself. <laughs> can, can you tell me, like, how did you rebound from, from having to how leave? How to recover. Yeah, like, how did totally. you recover and how did you well, get your footing in the professional world? Right, exactly. Well, I would say that I, fortunately, I prepared myself for that. This is sort of a key um, element to how I operate, and that's like this element of preparation. So I actually did three internships um, before I graduated. And so I think that that sort of set me apart when looking for a job. And it also just sort of informed me as to what I would like and maybe what would be the better fit for me. You know, I worked at larger firms, smaller firms, more architectural firms, more decorative firms. You know, I, I tried yeah. different things. And so I was I had the insight as to what would be kind of the right steps for me. And so I ended up making some intentional choices based on those like college internships. And so while I was the sad, appetizer <laughs> platter, so you knew yeah. like what you liked and what you didn't like. That's so, that's such a crucial piece of advice. I think to people in school is it's not so much about fine. I mean, a lot of it's about finding what you do like, but everything that you learn about what you don't like is equally important. It is really important. And I also think I could have made more money if I had gotten jobs doing other things, to be honest, during those college years. And so it wasn't necessarily the easiest choice because, you know, like one of the internships didn't even pay at, mm. at that time. I don't I don't think people do that anymore. But at that time, one of the internships didn't pay. So I, I could have made more money if I worked in a retail store, if I waited tables. The other theme is sort of playing the long game. I was sort of playing the long game and I thought this is going to help me later on. I think it was a it was a financial sort of compromise, but it, it, it did turn out to be like valuable information. Did you learn some survival skills during that too? There is some benefit to having to scrimp financially and that you kind of get really resourceful. Absolutely. And, and also I had my eye on New York city, which from a Southern California kid seemed pretty scary to be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it seemed like a daunting situation. I did my um, last internship was in New York City. And so I think that that really painted a clear picture. And I had to be resourceful. And, you know, I, I couldn't afford an apartment or even my own room. I think I, I subletted someone's dining room that was open to their living room um, on Bleecker Street in this crazy situation. So yeah, I mean, I think all of that sets you up for how to navigate certain things and how to compete. I mean, one of the things I, I saw right away was at this internship, there were three other students all from fancier schools, let's say. I mean, looking back, it, there was like a very much a reality TV show competition between like the interns. That was also very intimidating. I just, I was like the kid from out West, you know, I had big eyes and there's that shy part again, like I was probably quiet. 
it didn't look good at the beginning of the summer, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But ultimately, it showed me that while the other interns might have been more extroverted and colorful, that ultimately, by the end of the summer, I was the one that the principal offered back because I worked the hardest, I worked the latest, I would stay into the evening. And it definitely shaped Again, it was like another guiding light of like, okay, I get it. Like, I may not have that, but I know what I do have and I know what I can offer. You know, I think that internship period is so important to separate the flash from the solidness. Not that flash is bad. There are a lot of ways in which charisma just really greases the tracks and opens doors. But if it's not backed up with a solid work ethic, then it can start to feel kind of just like chaos, (laughs) just like a layer Mm -hmm. of noise. So you proved yourself in that internship. And then did you stay in New York? Well, so I had another uh, year of school. Mm. Um, So I I went back there during winter break and worked. And then I ended up when I graduated, I had a few options and I, I I took another job. And so I moved to New York in the summer right after graduation. And what was that job? That job was working with uh, the designer, Cloda. Oh, and how long did you do that? And what did you learn from that experience that you've taken with you into your own professional So uh, I worked with her for about um, five and a half, almost six years. I started out as, you know, the the recent college grad, like junior designer, do everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I learned really was about sort of, instinct and experience and three-dimensionality of space and not focusing necessarily on what we call now like drawing board design. Like forget about the alignments, forget about everything being perfect. What does the space feel like? And that was really like the core lesson from my time there. I also just learned how to navigate working with a team and like the reality of manifesting something mm-hmm. and taking something from like an idea and having it be constructed and sort of like all the pitfalls that are possible in that process. There's a lot of moving parts and there are a lot of people <laughs> that have to show up and be on their A game to make it happen. And then there's also just the very real real organic nature of construction. Like if you're going to renovate something, you're never going to find what you think you're going to find in demolition. And things just don't go according to plan in any area of life. Definitely not construction. So did you learn a kind of agility and a way to make decisions on the fly? I think it was a combination of like just brass tacks. Like these, this is how construction documents are really prepared. And this is how oversight in the field is really done. And absolutely the idea of making decisions in the field and this came up. And so how we're going to do that. I mean, that just never, that's not really something that you encounter in school. Um, You have an idea, you build a model, you do the drawings, you maybe do a rendering and here's your idea. And it's all about that. And, and sort of, I think the, the actual construction realities were just mind blowing. And I would also combine it with all the life the life stuff too, that's all happening at the same time. I mean, my first day at Cloda, I, I, I had just moved here from, you know, living and going to school in Arizona. I'm a Southern California kid and I'm moving to New York and the, the streets are crazy and everybody's driving fast and it's just this whole thing. And my first day of work, they said, oh, you're going to drive Cloda to Midtown and take her to a job site. Oh my gosh. I mean, 
can you imagine your first day of work as a, like a post call? I mean, I, I couldn't even believe it. And I, so they, they said, you're from California, you have a driver's license, right? <laughs> so, I mean, how to navigate something like that was as big as learning how to draw a millwork detail, right? Sure, I mean, yeah. because it's all, it's all happening at the same time. <laughs> And you can't kill your boss. <laughs> well, that's it too. I was like, what if I hurt this lady? I mean, this is really bad. Or what if I, you know, crash the car? I mean, I hadn't, I mean, driving in New York city on like your first day of work. Yeah. I mean, that's intense. I've driven in New York city before and I'm still, I still pinch myself that I didn't like back over any pedestrians or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. get into any accidents. <laughs> but, but let me ask you like a kind of a, a personal question. I mean, New York can be kind of overwhelming for a sensitive person. Did you also have to figure out how to manage that? But also, I mean, how do you not get boxed in? Cause as a young professional, the option to live there is only tiny boxes. I had a tiny box apartment. <laughs> uh-huh. Um and I think and I'm I'm quoting someone else and I don't know who said it, but this ultimately what you realize is that the city is your apartment. Yeah. And the apartment is like the place for like the basic functions, but that the city um really became like a greater extension of the sense of home and especially that, you know, in the twenty in my twenties and finally being away from home and having that space to, you know, it's like, you don't even have to be rebellious anymore because you just have the air to be yourself. I, I just, I remember walking down fifth Avenue and there was this guy wearing a chicken suit and no one looked, no one turned, <laughs> no one reacted. And I, I still remember, I remember that like the first day having to drive Clota, it's like, I, I thought, okay, I'm in the right place because it doesn't, nothing matters. I can just find my way. Yeah. So connect the dots between Cloda and uh, your current practice. Did you go straight into founding your studio or did you have? So I had a couple of steps in between. I went to work for the firm Sow and McCallan, mm-hmm. um, which is a great, sophisticated architectural firm. And there, at the time I was there, it was maybe 45 people. And there I, you know, learned really about like design methodology and I learned about management and I was, um, became a senior associate there and I learned sort of the workings of an office and, you know, the idea of, you know, money has to come in (laughs) in order to operate the office and, and sort of, I just got sort of behind the curtain insight into more of like the workings of an office. Um, and I knew I knew from my time there that I really wanted to sort of explore having my own office. I certainly was very, again, battling that shy thing where I sort of felt like I couldn't possibly have my own office because that requires being an extrovert and that requires, you know, being very self-promoting, um, which did not come naturally to me. Mm -hmm. So my first step in the process was to, um, form a business with a partner, um, and have a sort of, you know, business partnership with someone who has those qualities. Um, and so I was more like the creative person and really coming up with ideas. And she definitely, you know, was more of like a people person I would describe. So that was sort of like the interim step before realizing that actually my creative voice is so strong that I have to get over these hurdles that I'm really the only one putting in my own, you know, I'm putting them in my own way and get through that and figure like 
the result of being able to express myself creatively will be worth getting past my own stuff. Oh, well, we got to get into that. How did you get past <laughs> your own stuff? That's what everybody's trying to do. <laughs> First, you have to be self-aware enough to know that you're getting in your own way. <laughs> right. Well, I, and I think that I think that that self-awareness comes through with like being that sort of sensitive, observant, creative person mm -hmm. and also being like more of an introvert. Like I have the ability to be self-aware and to look at also like, what do I want to do? How do I want to spend my time? Um, and what does that look like? And I think I wanted to, before I became more expressive about myself, I wanted to make sure I knew what I was saying. So I did focus many years on learning the craft, learning the business, working for other people, having a great business partnership. And I'm still friends with her to this day. Um, and I, I did all of those things such that when I finally decided to launch my firm, I could feel confident that I have, I'm at a place where I can build a portfolio. I have relationships from working and living in New York for so long, um, from, you know, clients to trade professionals to, um, just like the extended design community. I felt very supported, um, and I just had to, yeah, break through, break through whatever it was that was holding me back, which might've been like maybe being too humble in a way and not really stepping up to, um, what it is that I have to offer. Yeah. You know, there is a, that that's a very mature and hard place to get to, to recognize that your own humility is not, not serving you and to actually value your creative output enough to know that it needs to be served by maybe you being a little bit more outwardly promotional or mm -hmm. celebratory of your own self, which, yeah, a lot of times as females, self-promotion doesn't always come easy. And to know that that's the thing, that's the hurdle that you need to get over or embrace in order for your creative side to be able to fully take flight is really a powerful recognition on your part. And it sounds like maybe you're, it's still a struggle, but you're working with it. Well, I think it's, it hasn't been natural, but it's been an evolution for sure. Because once I realized what is necessary in order to obtain the commissions that I want to work on, what is necessary in order to attract the talent that I want to be a part of my team? Like, what is it going to take? Once I started really digging deep and asking those questions then I realized that I have to sort of, I've always sort of been about the work and the process of design. And I talk a lot about the process of design, certainly in our social media, but really I realized that I had to surrender to the necessity of the brand image. I needed to put more photographs of myself in the world. And it's not at all natural for me. I would way rather talk about a creative idea that we're expressing than like what dress I'm wearing. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but people like to connect with the personality. And so when I realized that that was sort of necessary, I just started doing it. And, and I think for me, Instagram has been sort of the most comfortable vehicle for that because we can certainly express our sort of design strategies on the homepage and I can do that thing that I feel comfortable doing. But then in the stories, I can almost be casual and journal like because it's just so temporary. And mm -hmm. so I think that that for me has been 
the most comfortable way for me to sort of reveal myself. Well, I want to just give you a, a high five for revealing yourself in the form of this conversation. I've found for me that podcasting is the way that I feel really comfortable being able to create a platform in which we get to talk about you and the things that shape you and drive you and not just your last project is very meaningful to me um, because I feel like I get to know you. And if I'm getting to know you, then I know the listeners are getting to know you too, which I think just adds so much depth, not only to your work, but to the way we can look at the built world around us because we can start to connect it to all the humans who've been involved in making it. So anyway, Mm. thank you for sharing your story with us. Absolutely. I'm interested. You mentioned your process and how you share some of that on, on Instagram. Can you kind of walk us through what your creative process looks like? And if you want, feel free to use an actual project as kind of a template to, to break it down for us. Well, sure. I mean, I think, what I'm always trying to do is express that there first and foremost is a process. And I think that a lot of times we're sort of uh, romanced by these finished images of completed (laughs) projects and, and it's wonderful. And I, I I get on board with that too, but I always want to contextualize it in that it starts so long before that finished photo. Um, And really it comes in with the meeting of the client and who's the client. And I think one of the things about interior design is that certainly we can all design our own homes, but I think where the real sort of dynamic energy comes in is when you are designing for someone else. And I think that sets apart like a true designer is someone who is designing for someone else because that dynamic with the client is so complex and rich and full of major, major joys that I cannot even express how happy I have these moments and then also like very difficult moments. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it goes, it starts in that first meeting with a potential client. And, you know, when I meet with someone, I immediately have visions of color palettes. I immediately have visions of works of art. I have a whole sort of mysterious, instinctual thing that goes on in like minutes. And I just carry that with me. And then there's the whole process of, you know, you do a proposal, you pitch for the job, some you get, some you don't. And that's like, that's a whole other emotional sort of potentially turbulent process because, you know, when you lose a job, the, the, the agony for the idea that never manifested, (laughs) right. Um, and then when you get the job, how exciting, how do you, how do you proceed with that? And so for us, it's definitely like we study concepts and ideas and we pull everything from architectural finishes to decorative finishes to artworks Um, materials, colors. We're working intensely on drawings. Um, I do hand sketching, but my team is all um, the computer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we pull something together. And and really, the bulk of the effort is done in the first like six to eight weeks of a project. What goes Um, on in that initial client meeting where you're getting those mysterious, intuitive messages? (laughs) Are you? I mean, I totally get it. But I also wonder, like, what kinds of information they're sharing with you and what kinds of questions you're asking in order to really open up that intuition. Because so so much of this is so personal. You have to externalize their personality 
into their space, but you also kind of have to help them aspire to be the best version of their personality. Exactly. There's two directions for that. Oh, this is so exciting. There's two directions (laughs) for that because some of it is said and some of it is unsaid, Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of what's going through my mind is not necessarily because of something that's spoken. It is that I would describe like cosmic, intangible, kind of mystical thing that I cannot explain to you. I don't know how that happens, but I will, you know, how I see visions of color palettes like that, even as I say it, it sounds a little strange, but that's real. And I don't know where that comes from. That's just like a part of me and what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly I ask a lot of questions that are not the basic questions. And I also just get to know people as people. And, you know, I ask about childhood nostalgia. And, you know, there's, there's always like a weird color story. You know, I grew up with a green room and I can never look at the color green, or I grew up and I had an eight foot ceiling and I can never have that ever again. Or I don't know, like people, I I do ask about people's childhood experiences with space because I do think it informs their decisions later on pretty significantly, particularly Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. couple situations where you have to navigate that. It usually comes from like a childhood situation. I I believe that a hundred (laughs) percent. Um, and so that would be like a residential client on the other side, maybe for like a commercial client, we recently designed a restaurant and that project is a little bit different because it's, it's less, it's less about that really, really intimate stuff, but it is somewhat about like the restaurant tour and what she's about and what she's seeking to achieve. And then there's also the businessy stuff of what is this neighborhood lacking that this restaurant would bring to this clientele and, and how does the food relate to this? So I think it sort of depends if it's a residential project or a commercial project. Either way, there is the heart of the project comes within the first 10 days of me meeting with the person or visiting the job site. Um, and then it's my job to work with my team to have that manifest into an actual design vision that can be constructed. So how do you get those intuitive flashes out of your brain and onto, (laughs) like, how do you communicate them to somebody who wasn't privy? (laughs) Uh, Well, there's a couple, I mean, there's, there's the actual brass tacks that they're asking for, right? Mm -hmm. I want a dining table that sees this many people, or I want a restaurant that sees this many people, or I want to feel the outside inside or, you know, so they'll ask for some very specific things. And so it's kind of, you know, there's a little bit of a sales component to communicating design vision. Um, and it's, it's that balance. And it's what you mentioned before about the aspirational qualities. Like I always want to express that I'm meeting their very clear objectives and then show how we're sort of transcending those basic programmatic elements. As long as the goals are met, everything else is sort of icing. And I think it's also showing them a different way of looking at space. I mean, I think that's one of the values of a professional designer is that we just look at things in such a different way. And we see that like fifth option that no one else will see. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've gone to many meetings where there's a lot of people around the table and they're all looking, you know, at that box (laughs) and I am not in there. I look at something in a completely different way. And so I think often that is a delight to people. Um, And then the other stuff, I mean, I, I find people to feel 
they'll feel safer with some adventurous solutions. If I've also said, we can meet the budget, we can meet the timeline. This is how the team approached the code issues, or this is how the team approached the, you know, lighting issues or whatever. Like if you have, in my experience, the, the more you have those pragmatic things down, the more open they're willing to listen to you on the sort of, you know, adventurous ideas. That makes so much sense is because you have to kind of calm their nerves or else they are not even going to be able to hear what's so transcendent about like the exciting parts. Um, Exactly. Yeah. So art consulting and advising is a big part of your service offering. And original art is such an otherworldly, like spiritual addition to a space. I'm, I'm excited to hear about how you've developed that and what's involved in that part of your business. It's really become such a special part of not only my business, but also it's really impacted my life as well. And I think that that element of my practice has come again in a sort of natural way over time where, you know, I, you know, 10 years ago, I would pull art images and use them as inspirations for projects. And I would include them on the concept boards. And then clients would say, but I actually like that. I actually want that. Can I actually buy that? And so I saw it as a service that I could provide my clients who were never going to go into a gallery, who were never going to cold call a gallery and ask for a price. I saw it as a service I could provide to them. Um, I saw it as a way for me to like, expand my business with doing something that I really enjoy. And it just sort of evolved over time. And I've, I've learned through the process of sort of mingling in both design and art worlds that I'm sort of this sensitive conduit between these two worlds. And particularly the art world can have like an era of exclusivity around it. Mm-hmm. That never got in the way for me. <laughs> I mean, I was just always so excited by art and by artists and by artistry that I just, you know, sort of broke through some conventional barriers to make it happen. I'm sure it feeds your soul to be sort of constantly consuming original art and artists and and knowing not only what's out there, like you have to keep your finger on the pulse, but that you get to, as part of your job is to consume art. (laughs) which is so nourishing. It is. It really does feed the soul. And it really, it truly brings me tremendous joy. And I think ultimately I've now been practicing design for 23 years. And I think there came a point where I felt, you know, I'm so client services driven. I'm so wanting my clients to be happy that ultimately I sort of felt like I was just I don't know. I I felt like there was so much management involved that I needed more. I needed more to feel really good about what I was doing every day. And I think that that's what art did for me. It made me feel creatively fulfilled. I'm constantly meeting new artists. I'm constantly finding artworks. And it's not necessarily like young emerging artists. It could be a mid-career artist who's just not known. And I think that it just, it checked a lot of boxes for me in terms of, you know, making me feel really happy about what I was doing. But also it, like the artwork that we're bringing into our projects gives such an energy to our work and it helps our work maintain this unique flavor. You know, I don't necessarily want 
the the regular <laughs> the regular cast of characters mm-hmm. that most architects and designers are specifying on their job. I want to have my own voice, and so I think that having the the art advisory element in our practice just you know certainly feeds my soul, but also really lends a lot to the projects. Does it feel also meaningful in that when you place a work of art, you're kind of like you're matchmaking in a way. You're you're helping the artwork not only find the right space to live in, but find a good home with owners who will appreciate it. And it's a a conduit of these connections that's almost like adopting a child. When I place a work, Uh I feel so much of those things. I, I feel it is, it's almost like it renders me speechless because I feel happiness on so many levels. I feel that I've done something for the artist. Mm-hmm. I feel that I've done something for the people who now own it because I know it, you know, it's beyond me. It's, it, it has a whole other life of its own, but I set it into motion and I made it happen. And it, you know, I don't have children. I have projects and I have artwork. And that is, that is what I feel that I am fostering into the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like, to your point, it's almost like when that artwork is placed and the client is in love, I, it's, it's amazing. Oh, and yeah, I feel the joy coming through the microphone and I can sense it too. I mean, it's, it's a win for everyone, but it's also transcendent in that, you know that work is going to continue. To, like their their relationship with that work is just beginning, and the mm-hmm. artist who created it really, you know, put a lot of their soul into it. So it needs to go to a good home where that relationship can be something that has room to grow and develop. And you get to be the steward of that connection. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> So you already shared with us one of your major hurdles, which is getting out of your own way in terms of maybe being a little too humble to do self-promotion properly. What is the one thing that the universe is trying to teach you right now? Like what's the current hurdle, the area of growth that you're up against in the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's something that I I noticed as a teenager and i finally feel that i'm figuring out and that is that i'm not really accepting the prescription that our culture provided at least me as a as a young woman and it, it's the idea of creating my own way carving my own path identifying that and not sort of checking all the boxes that i was told i was supposed to check and so i think that's that's sort of like the last hurdle for me is feeling really at peace with the choices that I'm making and sort of this evolution into the kind of woman that I'm becoming. That's really well said and also something that at some point we all have to give ourselves permission to be ourselves. And that happens at various stages in life. I mean, in, in your teenage years, you kind of had to rebel and now that you're a professional woman, you kind of have to operate within a system, but you kind of have to carve your own way too. And I'm just sort of feeling the same thing. Like, at what point am I going to be okay with all the choices that I've made? Because I've, I, <laughs> I didn't know how I to just, make any other think, ones, honestly. Yeah, I just, I feel it on a pretty regular basis and in, in different circles that 
a lot of people want you to be a certain way or do a certain thing or they ask the questions. And I think, I think it's, it's a really exciting time to be in now where women don't have to necessarily follow any trajectory. We don't have to check off boxes to make you feel better. We can be our fully realized selves and that may look different than, you know, other people. Um, and so I think, I think that that idea of, really owning who you are and carving your own path. It's, and also creating it. Like it's not about what's given to you. It's about making things happen that you want. Um, I think that's another element of it. And I think that that's something that I, I see a lot actually. And I'm also always kind of identifying when I'm at a fork in the road, it's like, okay, what do I want and how do I make that happen? I'm not going to be satisfied with just what's being delivered to me. That's powerful. So let's play that forward. If you were on a magic carpet ride and you've got the steering wheel, um, where would you like to see your life go in like the next, I don't know, 40 years? Let's give it a big... 40? Yeah. <laughs> I just said to someone last week, listen, I'm going to be into my 90s with like my hair pulled back in a chignon with big earrings and like red lipstick. And I will still be wearing, you know, big glasses and creating and making and drawing like this is not stopping. This is just going <laughs> to keep on going. Um, that was like with regards to our website design or something. And I went into this whole thing. Um, for me, I'm interested in creating something that's beyond me and my firm. You know, I'm interested in connecting these art and design experiences. And, and I have some visions for something that I want to build and create and that will kind of live on beyond me. Mm. I can't reveal too much because it's actually like a real thing in my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, definitely. Uh, what can you reveal about a new or recent project that we can look up and, and learn about? Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited about an initiative we just launched in January, which is called Salon Series. And this is a live conversation program that we're hosting in our studio up in our gallery space called Exhibition. And we're doing it about once a month. And I'm inviting different creatives to come and have conversations. And we are recording it. <laughs> and it's, it's really, you know, the old world salon and bringing that into our day. I just, you know, I want to have like this conversation with you. I mean, I just think it's so interesting to have context for the work that people are creating. Um, and it's a great way for me to connect and sort of expand our creative community. Yes. And I feel like I hear from so many creatives who are, they feel a little bit isolated in their studios. And when you output, output, output all day long, you really need a lot of connective tissue in order to strengthen the mesh that the, of the ecosystem that you're a part of. And so... And it's so strange because we're, we're sort of like hypothetically more connected, but I think we're like very disconnected and we're also spending so much more time alone. So I think like the idea behind Salon Series is that, um, you know, we are together in a space and it's not different from like, you know, grabbing a drink at the bar or having like a dinner table discussion. It's like really getting to the heart of the matter. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at art and design work as I like it. I don't like it. I like it. I don't like mm -hmm. it. And it's almost like a little too flippant for me. And I feel like I want to understand people and why they're making certain things and, and where they're coming from. And I want other people to understand that too. And um, it's actually exciting. We've had a couple already and we've had, I mean, we have clients come who are, 
in, you know, law or finance, and this is completely jazzed up their world. And we have emerging artists come and, and they want to have a voice. And, and it's been really exciting. Oh, I love that. Where are you said you're recording it. So are you also like releasing it on social media or? We are. We're figuring all that out right now. But at the moment, the past two are on our website. Okay. Um, Franticco.com. And we have it's on the exhibition page. And so we are doing a full record audio recording of it. And then we're also doing like four or five minute video clips of highlights, um, just so people can get a sense for the people that we invite. I love it. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you so much for, for sharing your story and for placing artwork. I feel like that truly is heavenly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad there's somebody with good intentions who's who's doing it not just to make money, but to actually, not that economics aren't part of it, but it is a very personal and profound thing to find the right home for an artwork. So I love it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To see images of Elena's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It totally helps. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.